Well, I'm uh, excited to be with you guys this morning. We're continuing in our series, working through the book of Ephesians. You can start turning there now. We're in chapter 2, just starting here this week. And I may have mentioned this last week, but my wife and I were pretty excited to celebrate our four-year anniversary of living in California, and uh, really uh, grateful for that in this church. Um, One of the things that we've definitely enjoyed being here is all of the beautiful things to go out and hike and see. Anybody have a, a, a to-do list of a, a still like a hundred places to go see? I, uh, I, uh, everybody always has something that they want to suggest to me that I should go see. And uh, one of the ones I, I heard about this week, tell me if you've heard about this, it's called Dante's Viewpoint. It's found in uh, Death Valley National Park. Anybody ever been to Death Valley National Park? Well, very impressive. Uh, the, uh, what I learned about Dante's viewpoint, kind of a, some cool details about it. One is that it's at uh, 5,400 feet above sea level, which is uh, pretty neat. But the, what, what makes this unique, and here's a picture of it, is from the, this viewpoint, you can see... Uh, from the viewpoint, you can see off in the distance on a clear day, you can see Mount Whitney, which is at 14,500 feet, which is known as the highest point in the 48 state, continental 48 states. So you can see the very highest point. And at the same time, so that's northwest of you, I think, or I'm sorry, north, yeah, northwest of you uh, from that view. But then if you look, if you lower your gaze, you can also see, which is kind of cool, it's called bad water, I wouldn't drink it, but it's at negative 282 feet below sea level. So basically in one point, you can see the very highest point in the continental U.S., and you can also see the very lowest point in the continental U.S., kind of a cool spot to visit if you're a Californian. And I was thinking about that as someone had directed me to that, uh, that site, was that's really the story of Ephesians 2. What we're about to start exploring is you're seeing the very highest highs, but you're also seeing the very lowest lows. If you think about what, what the effect of those two have on each other, when you're at the very lowest point, the, the highest point seems way more impressive, right? Can you imagine if you're down on Badwater looking up at Mount Whitney? That's pretty impressive to see. But also the flip side is true. When you're at the top of Mount Whitney, then Badwater is especially impressive at how low it is. And here is we see that phenomenon, phenomenon spiritually true as well as you're seeing the height and also the depth of humanity. What God has taken us from the very lowest point and elevated us to if we've chosen to embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior is pretty impressive. So Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, it just follows up, and you might remember from last week, you could glance back into chapter 1, the last few verses, 21 through 22, we get to the highest point. It says, far above, talking about Jesus, far above all, all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his foot. So Jesus Christ is at the, at the peak. He's at the top of Mount Whitney. And now we're about to look at maybe a little less popular view of mankind at his lowest point. I want to give a little warning in advance that this text is a bit offensive to the modern ear. We don't really like necessarily messages of sin, 
wrath, and rescue. It's typically associated with the the bitter pulpit-pounding pastor. I'll try not to be that guy. But anytime you're working through a book of the Bible, you can't really skip some of those less popular topics. We're getting the full counsel of God's Word, so hopefully you're ready for that this morning. Let me pray before we dive in. Dear Lord, thank you so much this morning for a chance to be in your Word, the book that you really literally wrote to us, a love letter. And I pray that you'd speak to us through this, that you'd give us a new awareness and gratitude for where you've taken us from and where you've placed us positionally in Jesus Christ. Pray that you'd be great, I'd be small. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So chapter 2, verse 1, starts like this. It says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I want to stop there. I know that doesn't get us very far, but that needs a little bit of explanation. And you, I almost wonder if that was said with a a little bit of a snarl to it. And you, don't worry, Paul personalizes this also in verse 5, a couple verses later, when we were dead in our trespasses. It's basically a universal epidemic that we're all infected with universal epidemic that we're all infected with, the results of sin. Sin's often presented in our culture as kind of a a side problem, an annoyance amidst an otherwise pretty good life, if you're honest with yourself. So often something that's seen as like, yeah, I've got this sin thing, but really everything else is going good. It's not the sense of desperation that we see in the text here. find it interesting that it points to two different things. Sin's and trespasses. Now, at first uh, read, I was like, isn't that, isn't that being a little bit redundant, like the school of redundancy school? You see, it's not the case. That'll catch on to that later. But the, the idea of sin is the first one there. Sin, by definition, and you may have heard this before, sin is the idea of missing the mark. It's originally an archery term. You think of that idea, you're shooting at a, a target and you often miss the mark. But the problem with that is that's an easy one for people to rationalize. You're like, yes, I get it that God has a perfect standard and clearly I've fallen short of it, but I'm only human, right? But here's the problem. The second part of it, the trespass piece, is a little less easily slid past trespass is the idea of taking a false step it's an intentional deliberate choice it's the fence with the barbed wire that you climbed over it's it's deliberate willful disobedience you know you're not supposed to be there but you choose to go there anyway so not only are we failures we're also rebels basically leaving none of us innocent. This this description, when it's describing all of us in this position, every single one falls underneath that. The housewife, the the, the fireman, the uh, person employed as a Disney princess at Disney. You know, like every single one of us qualifies for this description as guilty. And what's the outcome? It says, and you were dead... In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So the outcome of our sins and our trespasses is, what does it say? We're dead. We're dead. You're like, okay, aren't you glad you came to, to church today? 
The idea here I've often heard as, as God's rescue of mankind, as if we were in water drowning and floundering, and he throws a life jacket and pulls us out of the water. Anybody ever hear that as an explanation? Thank God for the, for the, for the rescue thing that's sent to it. But here would suggest a little something different. Not are we floundering at the top of the water struggling. We're literally blue and at the bottom of the pool. We're blue and at the bottom of the pool. We're, we're beyond rescue. We're, it, it's done. It's, it's over. We're literally considered dead. And a lot of times people hear that and you're like, I don't know. Like, uh, it doesn't seem like I'm dead. But look back in Genesis 2.7. said this, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Do you remember this account? One tree they are told not to partake of. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the day that you, shall, that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In other words, the response and result of our sin was immediate death. Immediate death. So it's immediate, but not visible. That's the tricky part about it when you're trying to explain that to somebody, that you're, you're dead. Try, try that this week with a coworker. You're, you're, you're tell, explaining to them that you're, yeah, you're, you're dead. And these, they, they look at themselves and they're like, well, I, I feel alive. I, I, I feel like everything's going good. And, and, and in fact, that's why we get blank stares when we present a, a passage like this. But 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the, cro- of the cross is folly or foolishness in the NIV to those who are perishing. Something that doesn't make sense. Because when scripture talks about death in a spiritual sense, death equals separation from God. Separation from God. So you can still look like everything's going because he's sustaining your life, but you can be cut off from the source of life. My wife had a a girlfriend this week that uh, gave her uh, a, a thing of tulips. She really likes tulips. Here's a, a picture of them on the, the table. I, uh, one of the things, here's a, a little confession. The practical side of me looks at the tulips and my eyes always drawn to the bottom of the tulips and the fact that they're cut off. So they look beautiful, right? You look at the tulips, you're like, oh man, what an amazing flower. But to me, my logical mind is just like, yeah, but it's kind of living on borrowed time you know like like those aren't going to last very long I, I hate to break it to you but they're headed it's limited it's limited time somebody told me you add a penny they'll stand up longer but uh but but either way they're headed towards death you might look alive but they're cut off they're separated from their source and that's the same truth for us and almighty god that we're separated and we don't even realize it so what does this life look like what does it look like for mankind i titled this next section a day in the life of a dead person says in which you once walked look in verse two following this is what the life looks like following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. 
pretty powerful description there. You notice a couple things. First, out of the gates, it describes in which you once walked, and the idea of we're walking along doing life. But here's the piece that I think many miss. So many would suggest the idea that we're kind of doing our own thing and kind of going our own direction. But here we see that we're not. We're actually following one of three things. The world, Satan, or the flesh. The world, do you see him there in the text? The first one, the world, it says following the course of this world. The course, it's a a specific direction that it's headed or intending to head that we just unknowingly follow along. My kids watch some of these uh, annoying Disney shows with, uh, uh, I guess they're somewhat quasi-comedies or whatnot. One of the things that once your ear is introduced to it, the idea of a laugh track you're forever annoyed by them. Anybody else like this? Like you hear the laugh track and it's like, it's like trying to program you to laugh along at sections that I don't think are funny. Anybody else with that? With so many sitcoms, you're just like, I can't laugh at it because it's, it's, it's not funny. And, and, so, and so I was thinking of that as far as the course of the world and really that is really what the world is. It's one big laugh track trying to move us to follow along follow, do, do the same thing that everybody else is doing. It's a world system that's in place that has its own values and ways of doing things. But here's the thing that's interesting. is you look around, you're like, man, it seems like everybody has their own values and they're going all different directions. You're like, yeah, that's true in the world. Lots of people go in lots of directions. But here's what they're unified in, is they all agree that their conclusions about life supersede God's divine perspective. Their ideas of what's best, what's right, what's wrong, that supersedes what God might have to suggest, and that's where the world is united. It's called humanism. John MacArthur points to three different elements that are uh, huge in the world today. One, humanism, the idea that man knows best. Two, materialism, a high value on possessions. And three, maybe less popular to talk about, but illicit sex. The idea that we can have a right to personal pleasure regardless of the ramifications of that. All three would be markers of our world system. And I could literally spend an entire sermon, we could be unpacking just that idea of the direction. But that's how much the text spent talking about it. So that's how much time we're going to spend talking about it. But look as it continues the conductor of this orchestra, of the laugh track, following the prince of the power of the air. This is a description of Satan. We have to understand that our battle, I told you this is old school uh, sermon here, the battle is not merely on the physical plane, but also involves spiritual superpowers. That there's something at play here that we can't necessarily see, but that doesn't change the fact that it is a reality and it has an influence on the way that the world is marching, whether they know it or not. Whether they know it or not, the enemy is active and, and moving, and I think it's fascinating that it says that he's now at work in the sons of disobedience. My wife and I try to avoid anything that resembles a horror movie. Not a fan, sorry if you are. But uh, sometimes, every once in a while, a movie that we would be seeing in the theater, they might have a preview. And even those are like freaky enough for me to, to watch. And sometimes seeing the, the trend in those, so often the things that's the scariest, that's presented on the big screen, 
is the idea of somebody being under demonic, uh, that they're possessed, that, the, that the, obviously the devil is taking over control and he's guiding the ship. That's a scary idea to us, right? Like we, we make films about it, some pretty perverse and crazy stuff is, is celebrated, but then I read texts like this, wait a second, that the, that, that the prince of the power of, of the air is now at work in the sons of disobedience? So the truth is, and this is the reality that we don't want to admit, that the enemy is literally at work guiding anyone that's independent of Jesus Christ. Anyone that's outside of the shelter and the umbrella of Jesus Christ, Satan's having a heyday. He's like, I'm, I'm directing them where to go right now. They just don't even know it. They don't even realize it. That's what it's like a day in the life of a dead person. A day in the life. And if that's not bad enough, if, if that's not a, a big enough deal, well, well, first off, I want to talk about it for a second with that. Why, I, I've wondered, anybody else wondered why Satan even like, wastes his time? Why does he bother with that? Like, I, I have wondered, like, why, does he, why does he pursue us? What's he got against us? What did we ever do to him? Why is he chasing it, trying to bring us down? I was, some, I was listening to a, a speaker this week that was talking about the enemy, and he was talking about, he's like, the best picture to paint of it, and I thought this was a good one, is a junior high pool party. If you've ever been to a junior high pool party, or maybe more recent than that, you know, you got your hair gelled back, you're all dressed up, you want to look cool, and then the panic of seeing your friends coming with ill intentions, because you know what they're planning to do with you, is throw you in the pool. Anybody else have one of those, those memories that still haunts you? And I was thinking about that this week, and that, that point that you come when you're just about to be thrown into the pool and you have that helpless feeling, you shift strategies from trying to stop getting thrown in. What do you try to do instead? Take as many people down as you possibly can. Look out for the elderly woman, the children, whatever. Whoever you can grab, you're going out in a blaze of glory. And I was thinking about that. Wouldn't that make sense out of the enemy? Uh, taking the crown jewel, mankind, the crown jewel of his creation. I want to take out as many of them as I possibly can. So because of that, that's what we're dealing with in a day in the life of a dead person. The last one, and we'll move quickly through this, the last one is dealing with the enemy that's inside, the traitor within. It says that we lived in the passions of our flesh. The flesh is another culprit in all of this we're all born with it describes it there with by nature children of wrath we're born with a bent towards sin anybody that doesn't believe this needs to just watch toddlers for a little bit of time they you don't have to train a toddler to to sin they they're really good at it like right out of the the gates if you if you don't if you don't believe me put three hungry children in the room with one twinkie See, you, you will see sin nature like come out like of its full uh, course of that. And this picture is that he's saying they're living by the flesh, doing whatever, look at the description, passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. It's really a sad description. It's almost like, like barbaric or, or kind of the idea of an of a animal just following your primal urges, whatever my mind tells me I should do, Whatever my body tells me to do, that's what I'm going to do next. And that's how so many live a day in the life of a dead person that's described there. And here's the, 
concerning part. So that describes them like the rest of mankind, but they're children of wrath. Children of wrath. And this is the really unpopular part to describe that we have not just a loving God, we also have a just God that has to deal with our sin issue. It's described all over Scripture. I'll point to one, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Basically, our outlook is pretty low. Dead and heading towards wrath. Blue under the water and in the current that's taking us towards wrath. That's a scary place to be. And that, if I just left you with that today, would be pretty discouraging. But thank the Lord for verse 4. It says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What a wonderful verse. Talk about one to commit to memory, maybe uh, the, I mean, if you don't already have that. Notice the first couple words there, but God, but the most glorious conjunction there, no two sweeter words in Scripture. Some less mature uh, pastors have actually built series around just that idea, the but God intervening. A couple of them I was looking at this week, you might find them as offensive as I found. This is one of them, the big buts of the Bible. That was uh, one, another, another pastor had this title, Great Butts of the Bible. And notice, pause there for a second, notice that it's part two of that series. He got so much traction in the first one. And then one pastor that threw away complete abandon and just went with this, I like big butts. I'm like, I'm not sure uh, why he would do that. I, w- I can't imagine why you'd ever present those things from the pulpit. But the idea why it's such a big deal, why this is such an important section is because God didn't leave us in our predicament. Sin didn't have the final word. Sin didn't have the final word. It says that he being rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. I love the definition of mercy. Mercy is the emotion aroused by someone in need and the attempt to relieve that person and remove his trouble. We aroused an emotion in Almighty God that he wanted to relieve us from our situation. We broke his heart in our predicament. He's compelled by love. I was talking to my friend uh, Chet, who's a pastor. Uh, for a season, he was a missionary over in Liberia. And uh, there, amongst all the poverty, theft is a real issue. And at one point, they had all of their family clothes out after hand-washing them out on the, on the clothesline to dry it in the air. And you can guess where the story's going. Someone had snuck in and took all of their clothes Left or not, I mean, at least all that were being washed, left them in a pretty vulnerable spot, like having all your stuff taken. And the story that he tells, he says, so the next day, this was happened on a Saturday, the next day they're in church, in the middle of preaching, he sees a woman walk in wearing one of his wife's skirts. He's like, whew, I've got a message for this one. And, uh, but he, he decided to let things play out, and as he's, he's up there, he get, the service ends, And he sees finally at the end of the service that his wife is over there talking with this woman. 
He's like, oh man, she is, his wife's a spitfire. He's like, oh man, she's in, she's in big trouble. As he's walking up to hear what is being said in this epic confrontation, he simply hears the words, I have a blouse that will look perfect with that skirt. <laughs> he was fired up that she chose to not confront, chose to engage, and when he brought it up with her later in one of those strong fellowship moments that we have with our spouses... Her response was, if anyone takes your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. Love that picture of mercy. And isn't that it with God? He didn't just give us his, his cloak. He gave us his tunic too. He says, man, I'm rich in mercy. I'm giving you the, the whole enchilada. You're getting it all. You're getting all that I have to offer. My very most important possession, my son, came lived a perfect life, died on a cruel Roman cross so that we could be forgiven, brought back to life. Look at what compels that. Love was what moved him towards it. You see it right there in text. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Personalized, not a vague love. The love in which he loved us, compelled that, motivated that. And I love that it wasn't based on anything that we had done. Even when we were Dead in our trespasses. When we were at the bottom of the pool and really blue, that's when he chose to intervene. That's when I'm going to come and rescue you from your point of loss. This idea here is, he, is that says there in the text that we, we were dead and he made us alive. We were dead and he made us alive. If you think about it, we've talked about this before, that tells me that any person that's embraced Jesus Christ there is no such thing as a boring testimony because every single testimony of someone coming to save, uh, saving grace through Jesus Christ, it's always a resurrection story. It's always a resurrection story. I was dead and now I'm alive. That's a, that's a pretty big deal. I, I, was, I was dead, now I'm not. Like, that's, like if that happened to you, I would suggest that we'd be pretty anxious to talk about it with those around us. Let me tell you, let me tell you, at one point I was dead, but now I'm alive. Look at what describes the, what, what compelled that. It says, by grace you have been saved. People might not realize how desperately they need grace. There's confusion around it. We talk about it here in church. So grace is defined as what? Undeserved favor. Nice job. Get the sticker. This idea of undeserved favor is something that we're all desperately in need of, and we don't even realize it. My kids, uh, when they were young, we tried to instill, just lay some foundations of understanding about some of this, about grace, forgiveness, our need for it. This is a picture of my daughter, Alexa, and uh, she was real young and uh, obviously super cute, big cheeks like her dad, and uh, and had, um, and uh, at one point, I remember little Alexa, she had gotten in trouble for something. And as a dad, you're always looking for excuses to let your child off the hook, just to be honest with you. And so I'm like, I'm like, Alexa, she was busted. She was guilty, you know, like there was, there was no way out. And she's, she's looking up with her sweet little eyes. And, and I said, Alexa, do you need grace from dad? Do you need grace? And she's thinking for a second. I hear from the other room, I hear Chase chime in. Chase chimes in, starts yelling, Give her grace, Dad! Give her grace! 
And once she hears her brother saying, give her grace, she starts going, no grace, daddy, no grace, don't give me grace, daddy. And it's this like competing voices. One room, the son's going, give her grace. She's going, no grace. She clearly didn't understand that's what her little heart needed. That's what she just needed. She needed grace so desperately, so often, that's us. That's it. That, that's, the, that's it in a nutshell. We're in desperate need of grace. And here's what that grace did. Look in verse 6. And it's that grace, and it raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. His amazing grace didn't just rescue us, it elevated us. Didn't just rescue us, but elevated. What does it say? Raised us up with him and seated us with him. Now that wouldn't be such a big deal if you didn't realize where he was seated that we learned in chapter 1. Verse 20 of chapter 1 says that he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Remember that part I read at the beginning? Above everything, above every name, above every creation, anybody that's ever going to be named, anybody, any power, any authority, all of those things are all under his foot. And he's like, yeah, that's where I'm going to elevate you. In fact, he describes it in the present tense. Notice that raised us up with him and seated us with him from objects of wrath to objects of absolute favor. From the lows of the lows to the highs of the highs. And then what does he want to do? Why does he, why does he want to do that? He wants us to be displays of his grace. I've gotten to be friends uh, over at 24 Fitness with a guy. His name's Neil. I've just over the last couple of years. And uh, it's kind of fascinating. Uh, Neil is a... a uh, quite the athlete. He runs lots of marathons. And when I say lots of marathons, he said he stopped counting over a, when he broke a hundred of regular marathons. He's in the 70s of half marathons because he wants to break a hundred for that too. And he's done over 50 ultra marathons. So this dude was like made to run. I talked to him about like, what's, what are you going to do after that? What's next? Eventually you'll have to wrap up. He's like, you know what? After I'm done, when I break 100 in all three of those different categories, he says, I'm going to open my own tea bar. I'm like, okay, that's kind of random. But he says, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to display all the, the different, uh, thi- all the different trophies and all the different ribbons in that just to show people that, that you know, they can, they can do more than they thought. And I'm like, well, okay. And, uh, and just chatting with him about that. I was thinking about that as it relates to this. I was like, you know what? Isn't heaven kind of like God's T-bar? We get to be the display. What does it say here? It says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We literally, for eternity, get to be displays of God's greatness. Man, I can't believe he took him from being dead in the bottom of the pool to now elevated up next to Christ. Are you kidding me? Like, look, look at and look at him. He moved him. He took her. He took him. Are you kidding me? For eternity to be celebrated with Almighty God. It's such a cool picture. I don't, I don't know if there's anybody else that's okay with that idea of your future. You know, I'm, I'm okay with being a display unit. You know, that's that that that's cool with me. If you think about that picture. 
coming the contrast of the low to the high from children's of wrath to trophies of grace. From children of wrath to trophies of grace. That's the picture that he paints in this text. And my hope is that that's a bit of encouragement. Remember this, this idea of this series, unshakable identity? Reminded of who we are in Christ. It's not a bad truth if we've embraced Jesus Christ. But my last reminder, and we'll close with this, is for somebody that's sitting in here that's like, yeah, I, I can't really point to a time I've ever embraced Christ. That's, uh, that's kind of grim what you're pointing to. But here, here's the reality. Yes, you are dead in your sin and trespasses. And yes, you are headed towards God's wrath. But God intervened. He provided the way out. He provided the option just by simple faith, embracing him as Lord and Savior of your life. That is good news. And I would hope that no one would leave today without getting that solved in your life. And I invite up the worship team as I pray in conclusion. God, I thank you so much for this passage and the reminder of our identity in Christ. Pretty amazing to think of the grace that you've extended to us that's taken us to the low of from the low of lows to the height of heights god i pray that that truth about our identity would really settle in and and the all of the things going on in our world and our life would be run through that filter for perspective thank you so much for your grace for your forgiveness you're rich in mercy god we praise you for that in jesus christ's name amen Oh, what a beautiful message of hope this has been. I pray you live and bask in that this week. God bless you. Have a wonderful Sunday. Two.